All right, and welcome to Music Ally Focus with me, Music Ally's editor, Joe Sparrow. And in this episode, we're joined by none other than my old editorial comrade, our very own Stuart Dredge. Now, time is flying and we're already one month into 2023. So uh, we decided to ask Stu, who is Music Ally's head of insight, to flex those insight muscles and to speculate on what might happen in the rest of 2023. We talk about some of the biggest issues coming up in the music business this year, including the recent comments made by UMG's Lucian Grange about how income from streaming should be divided up, job cuts in music technology companies, including Spotify's recent layoffs. We ask if streaming is an affordable luxury that people won't cancel. And we ask if gig tickets are an unaffordable luxury that people will skip to save cash. And what about TikTok and how music generates money from non-streaming platforms, and also fairness for artists, and what artists can do to make more money and take more control over their careers in the coming year. So this Music Eye Focus podcast is going to be quick. Okay, no it's not. Stu and I talk for about an hour because there's a whole load of big deal stuff to chat about coming up in 2023. So go and make a sandwich before you settle down to listen. Anyway, in the time that this podcast is going to take, our old record-breaking buddy, Ashrita Furman, could snap 6,120 pencils. Ashrita snapped 102 pencils in one minute in 2020. Now, speaking of broken writing tools, Stu and I sat down to have this discussion as a companion piece to Music Ally's latest quarterly report, which was published in the first week of February. There's a link in the podcast description for Music Ally subscribers. So let's jump over to my chat with Stu right now. Well, Stu, it's a pleasure to uh, have you joining us for one of your incredibly infrequent appearances on the podcast. Let's dig into a few of the topics that we've identified as things that are important for the coming year. Um, And one of the really big starting ones, of course, is, as it was last year, income around streaming. Of course, things have moved on a little bit in this discussion uh, because of some fairly significant comments from Lucian Grange. And um, it's a good opportunity for us to chat about what Perhaps you can sort of identify, well, you can summarise what he said and what you think he means by that and what might happen next. Yeah, sure. Well, so, I mean, so Lucian Great, he, he has this, every year he writes this beginning of the year memo to staff and it gets published on news sites straight away. Um, and it's generally looking ahead. And a lot of it is just sort of just saying, we have these brilliant artists, this is brilliant, everything's marvellous. But he does put in some stuff on the industry. Um, and yeah, this time, it was basically, the gist of his argument is... Um, with 100,000 tracks a day, that means there's loads of noise and bad, I think it's a lower quality functional content, he described it as, um, that's yeah. trying to game the system. So he kind of was positioning this idea of real music with real artists versus people who are trying to game the system and steal their royalties. Um, and he went on to say, actually, this, this, is, this is a call for rethinking the streaming model, rethinking how payouts are calculated and how, how they're kind of paid, um, which is a debate we've had We've had lots on the last two years, and it's tended to come from the the grassroots. It hasn't come from the biggest companies in the industry. It's come from people like Tom Gray here in the UK, you more in the US, the union there. Um, and it's often targeted upwards at the streaming services and at the likes of Universal Music Group. The debate around streaming payouts and artist earnings has been, those have been the two kind of targets, I suppose. But now we have the biggest music companies saying, we actually think the model needs evolving. Now, he's, he's saying this because I guess that there's obviously a threat to their bottom line. Um, not that Universal and the labels don't care about artists, but ultimately they are going to make they are going to start saying these things when they feel like there is some 
some sort of threat or shift in in the air around them. So, like you said, there, there's this, there is this perception that music is the concept of music has changed quite significantly. We have pop music, which is this selection of three minute songs um, that are paid at a sort of royalty rate that is set by this. But you've also got generative music now. You've got um, uh, contextual music that happens in video games or people clicking play on sort of noise generators. So the, the concept of music is, is changing. And of course, on streaming services as well, there's podcasts, which are the the ultimate long-form challenge to music royalties. And audio. I think one, one of the things here is that I think when you're a universal music group, a lot of people have a, have a lot of uh, preconceptions over why you would say things and what you would do them. And, and often, if you're not so keen on the company, your assumption is whatever it's saying is because it's losing out and it's found a way to make itself even bigger and better and, and harm everyone else. And that, that's what I think some people took that line when these comments came out. But I do think at the same time, it's businesses built around breaking art, breaking artists, helping develop new artists and songwriters. And so I think there is merit in considering his arguments for like what they were, which was saying that I think there's a real problem here for developing music and breaking artists, and we need to do something to address it. And I think the other interesting thing was that his memo didn't say, and this is the model we would like to support. So it wasn't like he came out and said, we think user-centric payouts should be the thing. Or, um, But he did describe this idea of an artist-centric model, um, which was kind of purposefully unspecific. And, and the reason for that, I think, is not just that he was throwing a word around, but I think Universal wants people to talk about multiple new models that that the one thing they'll have in common is they revolve around artists whose music is being loved and engaged with by by listeners. And 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 that mm. that's the kind of the dividing line he wants to draw, I think, is is between the 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 the, the labels, the music the music industry, musicians on one side, and then this other stuff on the other that's that's sort of people gaming the system, but you also get the impression it might be stuff like sleep music, white noise different kinds of audio, which that's a bit I'm uncomfortable with because actually, and I've said this before, I think, if you can't sleep or if your baby can't sleep, white noise is the most incredibly valuable audio there is if it helps. So some of these other things, sleep music, again, so some of these other things, I don't think they're just low-value content. Some of these things can be extremely high-value content. But I do see what's happening is, is that I think it's an attempt to shift debate from majors against indies to music against non-musical bad actors. And, and that's kind of an interesting shift coming from a company that's so powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it comes back down to that concept of what is music in a sort of business sense. We've shifted to an infrastructure now and a cultural understanding where music is like water, to use that phrase, where you, you have a, a, a window and you select something in it and the music plays or the audio plays immediately, and it's whatever you want. And it doesn't seem to make sense to charge all of that at the same rate because it's all very different things, isn't it? Like you said, there's, there's lots of different types of audio and have different contextual meanings. So is he, if he's getting getting to this idea that you know that there are different values for different types of music, which I think in a very sort of top-line sense we can all agree with, someone who's spent months and months and months or years, if you like, over a lifetime, creating an album that brings us tons and tons of pleasure because it's 
it, it's something really encapsulated about being human in there or whatever, then that feels to be very valuable and something that has been generated very quickly in a, in a different creative process, perhaps it doesn't have the same... Do you see well, what I mean? Like I, I, I understand that contextually they have values, don't they? But at the same time, I think it, there is a difference there. I think it's very difficult, though. So oh, what's that? Oh, there's an anecdote. I think it's about Dolly Parton writing I Will Always Love You, or it could be in a song. There's, there's one song, a very famous song, very famous somewhere, that was basically written out in an envelope in the studio and bashed out, and, and that's how it came to be. Um, so I, thought, I think you're, it's a slippery road when you start ascribing value because someone has to decide what is valuable. Someone has to make it. I think we could all agree that some music is more valuable than others, but I think we'd all disagree on which music is more valuable. Um, you know, if you love if you love a modern artist, they might bosh out something on their keyboard and stick it on TikTok, and to you, that's high value. To someone else, that's exceptionally low value. Crazy Frog was high value to enough people who bought it back in the day. So it's, that's the weird thing. I think I think it's very difficult. And again, we are getting to the area of like saying, well, white noise is not high value, but it is very high value to people who like it. So, but I think the the interesting thing about this, or the the, the thing that I've been thinking about is we've had this debate about models for streaming for a while now. So we started from the point where we have the pro rata model, all the money from the subscribers goes into a potential royalties pool and is divided by the whole streaming platform. Mm. So your money goes to people you don't listen to because, you know, Drake is really popular and your music might not be. And then we had this idea of user-centric where your money only goes to the artists you listen to. And that was very simple to explain. Like it's that one, like it, it seems complicated, but it's that one sentence really. Your money goes to artists you listen to. But I feel like maybe in this Lucian Grange memo and in the stuff that AIM, the indie body in the UK, put forward last year about um, the artist growth model, I think it was called, you're starting to see people say, well, maybe there's something else. It doesn't have to be user centric. So Tidal are trying a thing where you have sort of direct money going to artists you like. I think people are playing around with the, Maybe user-centric isn't what comes next, but that's that's a pointer on the way to what does. And maybe we're going to have this year, mm. I think, another round of just discussion, really, about this streaming's model doesn't have to be set in stone. So what do we want? And and that seems to be, I'm not sure it's co- coagulating the right word. It's, it's blood, isn't it? It's, it's collecting around the idea that we want to reward and support artists. Uh, at yeah. all levels. And, th- and the problem here is finding a model that works well for for Drake, for a mid-tier touring band, for a, a singer-songwriter just starting out. Finding something that kind of works across all of those, it- it's really difficult. Um, I mean, without going down the rabbit hole of user-centric payment, because that is a big discussion, th- you-, you said that you know the key to it is simplicity. I understand that when I listened to... If I was listening to a user-centric payment system um, on a streaming platform if I listen to 100 artists a month I know that the money is split between them depending on how much time I've um, spent listening to them and while of of course some data says it would make no difference in terms of who gets paid what and some data says you know it has different arguments around where that money goes ultimately that's kind of the point isn't it that I, I know that my actions are having a direct consequence on the people that create the music and and that's that you know isn't that sort of the ultimate um artist-centric model in that sense well i think there's a really there's some i think the interesting people are saying what's the good thing in that and the good thing in that i think is it, it reconnects you with the music you listen to directly it reconnects your spending with the artists you like that maybe we have lost in the past you know we 
we spend money on a streaming service, we don't really think about how that money goes to certain artists. And user-centric does make that explicit again, that your money goes to the people you like. Um, I don't know whether that would incre- increase people's likelihood to subscribe, because that's how it could be meaningful in that sense. If Because I, I think a lot of the research so far says it's not that much difference. Some artists would win, some would lose. Overall, it's not a huge, huge change. Um, but if it- So if it's not a huge change, surely it's a case of saying, well, let's do it then, because... You know, we, we, I know my money's going to my favourite artist. Well, yeah, and it sounds, I mean, I, I, I love the idea. And then recently, so by the, this, it's not gone live yet, but it will have by the time this podcast comes out, published a piece looking at some of the criticism of user-centric. And one of the things mm. that people have been concerned about is the idea, if it does redirect money, part of that redistribution will be away from the most popular genre, which is hip-hop, rap, towards other genres, which uh, that's about from popular to more niche, but by definition, it's a genre that is, there's a lot of young black artists making it towards mm. older white artists. And this is a very gross interpretation because, because black artists are making like folk and they're making alternative rock and they're making music. Like, it's not like hip hop is black people, everything else is white people. Mm. But this is one of the things people are concerned about, like who will be the losers of this switch? And is that something we're comfortable with? Um, so there's, there's, it's interesting. I think that it's not like a pro-rata, bad, user-centric, good. And if you don't like user-centric, you're against the idea of paying people fairly. I feel like we're ready for a more mature debate now where we have people like Lucian Grange, people like Tom Gray. I'm not sure you'd say quite on the same side, but they're all saying we think there needs to be a change. And that's a very good basis, I think, for for really kind of trying to talk in a way that doesn't just rouse the rebels, but it actually leads us to, to mm. somewhere you if you have uh, by the way out there spotted uh lucian and tom uh, meeting up over a beer somewhere please do send us uh, full information on that It'd be fascinating <laughs> to find out um but um yeah i mean there's there's solutions there in between isn't there as well there's no you know there's no reason to say that you know a percentage of the money couldn't be paid in the user-centric system a percentage of the money that you put in could be paid in a pro rata system and labels can take a tithe out of that and put it towards artist development or whatever. Um, the one thing he didn't sort of mention explicitly, I don't think, was um, AI-generated music. You could argue that that is essentially the existential crisis that uh, labels are facing in that sense, in that uh, tech companies are getting to a point where they can start to hit a button and generate meaningfully good uh, music and then start to charge for it. So... Do you, and there's a, obviously a, this is a big discussion. Do you, do you think that's what he was referring to when he was talking about? I don't know. Do you know? Honestly, I feel like the AI music controversy right now is not about it displacing human music. It's about the training of the AIs and the, mm. the, the do you need a license to train an AI? That feels like that's where the labels are kind of aiming their angry guns. At. Like if you train your AI on our music, you need to pay for a license and have we have given permission. They don't honestly don't seem to engage right now about this. I think maybe maybe like you say when when Lucian Grange talks about other kinds of content, low quality content, maybe he is thinking about that in the next step along. Um, mm. But I don't know really. I mean, I think we've always argued that AI music is a tool for musicians, not a replacement for them. And I, mm. I think there's enough momentum around that in the industry to understand that actually this could be. This could be interesting in our hands, and that's why we need to put it in musicians' hands. So yeah, I, I, I don't know really. Mm-hmm. I think, I think um, 
AI music is is a fascinating discipline, and and I think for years the industry kind of it was kind of a little niche subject. And I think now because of the image generating AIs and the text, mm. the things like ChatGPT and um, the various kind of the mid gen, all the kind of image ones in industries like photography, arts, there's a, there's a lot of kind of crossness and a lot of kind of this is bad. They're nicking, stealing our work, and now we won't have any work because it can produce these images for people. And I don't think music's quite at that debate yet. I think we're still more focusing on the training and not seeing it quite so existentially. Um, mm. it's, it's, it will be interesting because if you listen to something like some of the music that's generated on the OpenAI's jukebox platform, it sounds pretty good. You know, like you can say, hey, can you do me a song that's in the style of this artist with the lyrical influences from this artist? and out pops something that sounds uh, vaguely like it, and and we're sort of getting closer. Aren't well, we? I think so. I mean, it's it's very different. What, what are you looking for for music at different points in your in your life? Like, so the Nick Cave thing recently, where he gave uh, ChatGPT absolutely seven barrels because someone asked him yeah. to write a style in the, in the style of Nick Cave, and he made that point that an AI hasn't suffered. And my God, Nick Cave has had a life, hasn't he? So he's his mm, songs, mm. and I don't think that's ever going to be under threat that the human artistry that the, the life of the human that goes into music again someone like Dolly Parton everything she's drawing on is in her songs um Adele anyone we talk about um so it's a weird it's a weird thing where it where AI music has a role perhaps is in for example helping you get to sleep a lot of these functional uses of music mm. um and I'm not sure that can be fought off really um but that's I I don't think I don't think the, the the aim is to to make you care about a virtual AI artist like you care about your favorite human artist. I, I mm. do honestly think that's that's insurmountable, and I don't think that's a problem for AI, AI music discipline because it's not trying to do that. I don't think it's a problem for music. I think the interesting stuff will come elsewhere. The interesting stuff will come when that artist you love, drawing on their entire life and their experience, makes some music that uses AI as a tool. To make a really good, to make really good music. So that's that's one thing, and then all the same, there'll be other things like so. For example, in in games or in movies, all the incidental music stuff that doesn't yeah. need to, a human composer to do the massive big front score. There's all kinds of ways music is used, and and that is yeah. If you make your money from doing production music, I think it is a really big existential issue of like well, that would be concerning. You know, it's like like as a journalist, if, if you're a journalist, if you if you scribble up press releases or if you write very simple weather reports or a lot of these things can be done by an AI now. So the job is to do the journalism that's really human and, and do the stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think in music, I really don't, I don't see it as a horrible threat, but I do think we need to talk about all these things and we don't, we shouldn't brush it in the mm. cupboard and say, no, no, it'll be fine. I think we need to talk about the training issue. We should talk about the areas where it will kind of catalyze humans. And, just again have a grown up discussion, which the music industry is getting better, I think, at having these uh, not knee jerk reacting to new technologies in a bad way or, or overhyping it. Maybe we're getting this medium of like, what does this thing mean? And what are going to be the intended consequences? And what might be the intended consequences? And how should we prepare for that? I'm looking forward to a time when uh, I can get a an AI to write my work for me and I'll just stick my name on it. <laughs> but that's just me. Well, talking about people losing their jobs. We're recording this on the day just a few hours after Spotify's announced that it's laying off about 600 people. Now, of course, this is a common, unfortunately common thing across the whole of the tech industry. Uh, 
all the, pretty much all of the big platforms now have laid off uh, a significant number of people when you add them all up, tens of thousands across all these different platforms. Um, what does this mean? You're, there's been a lot of speculation that Spotify would have to do this. It doesn't. It's no huge surprise that they are uh, laying off 600 people. But what does it mean, and what, what sort of wider impact does this have? Yeah, well, like you say, it's been a very, very common refrain to the point now, I think, where if you're laying people off, you know you can say this, which has come from all the tech CEOs, which is basically, in the pandemic, our business rocketed because we were a digital business. Um, we invested heavily thinking that would continue. And then we've been kind of sort of blindsided by some of the econ- economic stuff since then. And our business hasn't grown yeah. to match our investment in stuff. And I think uh, Alphabet said this. I think uh, Meta, Amazon. Well, they've all said it, haven't they? And it doesn't really ring true, does it? Well, you know, I mean, it does. I think there was a lot of that. But oh, does it? There was a lot of that bullishness at the time, wasn't there? Of saying, well, our business is great. People are doing more stuff online. And I think people did invest. They, I mean, I think the Wall Street Journal had a list of like how how much the headcounts had increased at some of these companies. And they'd all about... Dramatically. Yeah, yeah. I think Amazon may have doubled, Meta nearly doubled, I think others were like... So I think there's 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 truth in this fact that over-expansion on the assumption that these patterns would continue. The other thing I get really, really that annoys me is this whole during the pandemic, as if that was in the past, because we're still very much... Yes. Yeah. Technically but post-lockdown is more accurate. But mm. so I think... For Spotify, like other tech companies, they've seen an opportunity in recent years and they've got after it, invested heavily, increased in headcount. I think we, we, we quantified it as it went from, I don't know, 4,000 something to 6,000 something in two years. Mm. Um, and at some point, you look at it and go, our costs are bigger than our revenues and we can carry on like that in the assumption of massive revenues ahead or we have to change. And, and, and today came that kind of letter yeah. saying, and I think the other thing, the other element of these these letters from CEOs is always like, it's my fault. I take responsibility for this. I did the thing. I I I, I like every, all yeah. the web on says it makes stresses like a personal. I made a mistake, and that's become part of the lexicon of like CEOs enhancing layoffs. Which I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, CEOs are uh, famously not uh, perhaps perceived as being very. Um empathetic uh but uh, yes i guess they have to say that now of course the, the other thing is that spotify you know, this they're laying off um this large number of people 600 mm-hmm. i think it's going to cost them 40 to 50 million dollars in uh, compensation um that's as, you know it's a big expense but also when you're a huge business it's, it's not enormous but they've also you know it, it sort of puts things in context doesn't it that they they did also famously they've sponsored barcelona football club for a quarter of a billion dollars uh, over several years mm. do you think people are going to point at that and say uh well you know you found the money to do that but you couldn't keep these people on i think that's you know what's already happening i think from looking at twitter today um it's the same i mean it's often the same thing people look at uh, so companies when they have a new office they often go here's our amazing new office and then if they have to lay off block two years later everyone goes remember that blog post about your wonderful office and i think yes. barcelona is going to play that role with well, offices too for Spotify, I think, I think that maybe there'll be more. There'll, there'll be some discussion about what is the Barcelona thing achieving? How, is that return on investment worth more than the stuff you go? Um, at the same time, spending a little money sponsoring Barcelona doesn't necessarily mean your your headcount isn't too big for what you need. So, 
I'm a little mm. wary of going down the, they could have not done this and then they could have kept all those people on. When we talk about artists being paid for streaming, people often use the word Spotify in place of streaming because it has become a sort of uh, a de facto uh, word for it. Of course, there's many huge streaming platforms out there. Um, so when people are sort of looking at artists getting paid and they're looking at Spotify trimming the fat at the company level, yet paying money out over here. It's, it, there's a sort of big picture discussion here, isn't there, about how Spotify spends its money and how they redistribute it. If if we sort of accept that they keep a certain percentage for themselves but to run the platform. Yeah, there was a comment at the Nylon conference recently um, along the lines of we need to talk more about the cost of the streaming economy. So uh, what is what is the... What is the right headcount you need to run a streaming service? What are the right costs? What should you be spending money on? So maybe this will provoke a little bit of that, I think, of, of well, what are Spotify's numbers and, and what were they spending money on and how has that worked? So I think the other thing is is these Spotify layoffs. And I think it's always hard because we talk about Spotify layoffs and 600 people, but, you know, for each of those people, it's 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 a big, horrible thing. And, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it's, it's, it was awkward talking about it in this sense of, like, what does it mean? What's the trend? Because means something intensely important to people who have been laid off i think we've had this period of for for spotify and streaming services and for rights holders booming growth so streaming saw off what they saw as the piracy threat it returned the recorded industry to growth there's been these years of it felt like kind of back to growth. i think was it seven or eight straight years of growth the, the ifbi says so it felt like yeah. a boom period, and that continued right through the first COVID kind of surge and lockdowns. And maybe this is like a, a little, not a little, an important wake-up call that even an industry that is growing again and everyone felt very buoyant isn't immune from some of these wider things going on, the, the, the economy stuff. So I'm not saying suddenly music companies are going to start laying off people left, right, and centre. But it is a moment for even the, the big major labels, for example, the big companies around music tech will be thinking, right, well, how are we? How efficient are we? How are we as lean as we could be? Mm. So that's that's the kind of the, the thing I wouldn't look, the worry, really, that will, will we see what's happened in the big tech companies? Will that spread to the big music companies? Um, are we going to see some of these kind of chill economic winds affect even smaller uh, companies in around music? So I, I think that's the that's the slight concerned this this the events today aren't just about did spotify run its business properly was it spending too much are these layoffs you know overdue but yeah i mean what's happening in the wider picture and are we going to see this kind of layoffs we've seen in tech come to music even though we've had this these years of growth for the industry the infrastructure has been built now you know the streaming infrastructure is there you would think that you could perhaps let's say let's, this is all hypothetical but let's say you hypothetically cut your workforce, your streaming platform, you cut your workforce fairly significantly, but the streaming infrastructure is there. And hey, look, if people still keep paying $10 a month and keep streaming music, the music is going to be delivered to them. They're going to get this service. They're going to be happy. And you've cut your costs over here and the money keeps coming in over here. Um, That sort of works until you say, hey, what if people start cancelling subscriptions? Okay, $10 a month, might not be a lot of money, but if you have a lot of these subscriptions, if you don't care about music that much, perhaps you'll cancel a music one. So is streaming cheap enough to be an affordable luxury that won't get cancelled? Or 
will we see a bit of a uh, downturn in the mm. subscription rates? Well, I've got two thoughts here. One thought is people do have multiple music streaming service subscriptions, but I would say that the, the model is much more you have one subscription than it is in the video space where a lot of people have Netflix and Amazon and Disney Plus and so on. So personally, I think that if you're cutting, you maybe would look to cut one or two video services before you cut your one music service. Um, the flip side is that is we have Spotify has a free service, so you can drop back to free from subscription, which isn't the same in the video world. You know, if you cancel Disney Plus, you don't have Disney Plus anymore. Um, so that's one thing. I think uh, I think music has maybe insulated a bit in terms of there were, there might be other services you cut first because suddenly three video streaming services feels like too much. Um, I think the other point get, is where it gets a bit worrying for musicians because one of the arguments I've seen is that digital streaming services, whatever the kind, music or video, in a recession, they're well-placed because people will go out less and be in more. And when they're in, they want to use these services to entertain themselves. So we eat out less, we, we travel less, and we go to less concerts, for example. And that's where you go as a musician, hang on a minute. So if people are going to go to less concerts again, just when we've got out of lockdown, I'm not so sure that them using streaming services is going to make me happy. So there, I think for the music industry, there's kind of a, a sort of double-edged sword here of what recession means. And if recession means we go out less and hang on to our streaming subscriptions, I think a lot of artists are going to be worried about that. They're worried more worried than they are because touring is already tough. And we've written about this in the last few months that touring is very tough at the moment if you're anything below a superstar. Um, so that's the the concern this year is, and, and obviously places are different. Some places are in greater economic crisis than other countries. But if we look, talk with a general rule of, place of, of countries being wobbling and people thinking I need to track how I'm spending my money, I think I think we're going to be more worried about live dying again than we are about streaming cancellations, if that makes sense. Two interesting things with gig tickets at the moment, which is, of course, before the pandemic, it was boom time. People were rushing out to go and see live shows. It became incredibly popular, more popular than it had been in the past. Prices... Have, had gone up way ahead of inflation for many, many, many years. The, the prices were sort of artificially high, we can now see, uh, particularly for those sort of mid to low level gigs. We've also got this dynamic where you say, well, you know, Madonna's only going to do this international tour once. I want to see the hits, 150. I don't, know how, I don't know how much the tickets are, but let's say they're $150. Uh, oh, okay, I'll spend, I'll find $150 to go and see a one-off once-in-a-lifetime thing at a, at a giant stadium, but I probably won't spend $150 over, let's say, six tickets uh, to see six smaller shows. What do you think will happen with that dynamic? I don't know. I mean, we're already seeing, like you say, the biggest, like, biggest I've said, for example, in my case, Blair, they can announce Wembley Stadium gig sell golden circle tickets for 125 quid and it sells out in a flash and they announce another date. So at that level, I think you're right, people, it's an important experience for people to see Madonna, to see Blair, to see Drake, to see Taylor Swift. And there are enough people who can pay it who will. Um, and you're right. And I think the other thing we've seen is this, this isn't just about people buying tickets or not buying tickets. It's about the cost of putting on the show in the first place, which is fuel costs, um, administration costs, 
especially in, with Brexit in Europe. So there's, there's this twin pincer affecting bands and, and artists lower down than the superstars, which is putting on the gigs is a lot more expensive and you're worried about will people come out. Um, and so we're seeing these cancellations and the cancellations, they're a mixture of um, we just can't make the costs work um, and sometimes being quite candid saying we just didn't sell enough tickets, which is is, yeah. is a whole, for an artist to admit that, it sounds like you're saying we're just not popular, but it's it's not. There's a dynamic here, I think, going on of actually... Yeah, I mean, they mean they couldn't sell enough to make the gig worthwhile. Well, touring was always about. Yeah. That's what promotion does, isn't it? They know exactly how many tickets a band should sell and which venues they can play. And it's relatively rare for someone to get massively overbooked into a too big venue because it's a science about, well, they played here two years mm-hmm. ago, they played these venues, they've done this since then, so we know they can fill the Brixton Academy or Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's what seems to be maybe surprising people. Actually, you can you can book into venues and then realise you can't sell them out like you thought you could. Um, and then there's a well-being stuff around this. Um, artists are stressed about the costs and about the whether they can sell tickets and whether they can make enough money after lockdown. And so it's a real horrible unholy brew. Um, and we've seen it talked about individually when artists make announcements. But I think this year is going to be a really important year to say, well, what's why has this happened and what's wrong? What can we do in the short term to support these artists? And what does live look like in the future um, when we hopefully come through this time of economic woe and then that's still limiting from it? So, yeah, it's a big... It does feel a little bit like we were talking about music at the start and the concept of music has changed where we have, you know, we have high value pop music that's created by humans that put a lot of work in and then maybe slightly uh, lower value in the sense of... Uh, the money that gets directed towards the music, which is generated automatically or in mm. games or whatever, things like that. And maybe we're seeing <clears throat> seeing the same sort of thing happening in live, which is, you know, uh, it's 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 breaking into tiers where we can say, okay, this at the top end, the big stars can charge what they want and people will still go. In fact, if you put the ticket price up, people perhaps might want to go more because they think it's going to sell out and they want to see it. And then you've got this kind of loose middle section where maybe you maybe you can sell the tickets, maybe you can't, and then at the bottom, which is probably going to be the place that's hardest affected, you've got the the people on the first rungs of the ladder really struggling, perhaps, and which is not a, you know, that's a cynic, that's a, you know, maybe a cynical perspective, but it it does sound like a, there's going to be some correction there in terms of what's possible in the future in terms of touring. You know, you maybe you don't tour as much, you don't mm. do as many gigs. Uh, because it's not possible. Well, what does that mean? I did an interview recently. Remains. Did an interview recently with someone who was talking about the idea of maybe you'll maybe you'll book a venue and play a residency more, uh, and that could become more mm. common. You book a venue for a month, play a bunch of dates there, set it up how you want it. Fans travel to you. So there's there's all kinds of things people could try. And I think you're right. I mean, the other thing I think is, if you're a big artist who can sell out a stadium, this isn't the solution to the problem for everyone else. But think about who your support acts are. Take like like get bring lo- bring artists in from each place you go to have lots of support acts have a bigger day of it, you know support those bands lower down those artists lower down that that's one thing maybe that we might see more of um, is that band is artists thinking who can I bring on to me who can I have support me in this study, um, and also maybe there's there's there's, there's different value points in this as well you know maybe um, you know clubs for instance where you go and watch a dj perform it's it's much cheaper to send a dj around touring uh than it is uh let's say a, a five-piece band with guitars and drums and things like that and maybe there's going to be sort of cheaper alternatives where you can have the sort of unifying together feeling with other people that it's only you know maybe t- 10 
pounds to get into somewhere because it's it's a it's a cheaper form of entertainment if you see it. It's weird. Do you remember that thing recently where there was some footage of Ian Brown playing a gig uh, with with basically a recording? And I think the yeah. the, the jokes they were directed at is singing. Um, but also, we were saying he hasn't even got a band, and you think actually that's probably the most financially prudent way to tour now, not having a band, which is terrible because all those musicians who rely on being. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing I think is going to happen this year is, and we've already seen this during COVID. Um, the tougher it is to make money from live, which I think includes merch because it's a big driver of merch sales. The tougher it is, mm, mm. the 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 more it, it it fires up that debate about how streaming pays off for artists. So I think that's again. This is what's going to fuel the debate about streaming royalties this year. Is if artists are really struggling to make money from touring, it's going to yeah. ramp up the pressure for there to be change, and it's going to ramp up the complaints, and it's going to. So that's the dynamic we're in. I think. I think people can't assume anymore. Well, you can make your money from live and t-shirts, which was always the thing, the, the the worst thing to say when someone was saying, "I haven't got any money from streaming," and I'm sad about that. People go, "Well, just make money from touring and t-shirts." Again, yeah. it forces yeah. us into a proper conversation about how musicians make their money. Um, well, speaking of which, then let's talk about TikTok, which um, is a platform which is incredibly important to the music industry in terms of fans discovering music or rediscovering music or engaging with music. It's incredibly important for artists to market themselves, market uh, artist teams to have built TikTok as the center of their plan in many uh, cases and are finding ways of using catalog music to uh, refresh it and bring it to a whole new audience. I mean, it's so central, um, th- this platform at the moment, you know, we know how quickly things can change. But of course, while all that sounds superficially good and is good uh, in the sense that it does all those things, there is a much bigger debate here as well around the use of that music and how money moves around this platform and how it reaches the people who make the art that is used to create the content that drives the platform. So what's the state of play with TikTok and music, and where do you think it's gone? Hmm. Well, so last year ended with with labels and rights holders really rattling the sabres at TikTok, it's a bit in public, but I think in private too, saying it's not paying us enough given how big it is. And the, the various, like, we have to understand from people familiar with the situation, sources, the gist was that I think I think right now TikTok pays labels. It does pay rights holders, and they want more. And ideally, they want a slice of its advertising revenues, which is where they see the big money coming to TikTok. Um, For clarity, they're paying they're, they're paying like a chunk, aren't they? They're paying a big chunk of money. I mean, the, to, to to cover licenses for a well, period. so the, mo- the the model for social media licenses to talk generally because I'm not really I, have, I wish I'd seen the contract and the deals. Um, the, the mo- if you do have access to that, you can email me at uh, joe at musicalli. <laughs> I mean, the model has generally been, it's almost like the social media company will pay upfront to rights holders to essentially not get sued or for the rights to use that have their color music used. But it's not like a, a Spotify style deal where you you are accounting to them for every music used and you're paying royalties. Mm-hmm. It's more of a, here's a flat fee, don't sue us. We'll figure out licensing at later date properly. Like a blanket license. Yeah. yeah. So this is, and, and I think the music industry is now very focused on, right, how do we progress from that? How do we make sure that's not always the case? And TikTok is very much in the line of fire of we would like you to pay more for music. And it's it, in a weird way, it's got these echoes of of long ago battles, not so long ago battles. So the whole, I mean, the whole YouTube 
debate down the years about the value gap and how YouTube is a massive platform, music is really key to YouTube and it's not paying us enough and we want it to pay more. And that was also wrapped into stuff like about the, the legislation that allowed YouTube to have music on there without being sued. Um, that was kind of part of that debate. But it, it feels very similar. Like you're massive, music is really key to you, pay us more. Um, and interestingly, there is still a value gap debate and this still gets fought over in the kind of corridors of policymakers. But I would say the music industry is pretty happy with how YouTube has evolved. They they like mm. its premium service. They like it as a swimming service. They like the money it's paying. And it's been making sense of saying this is how much we're paying the music industry. And that comes with quotes from all the major label bosses saying we're very glad about this. And so YouTube has kind of become, it's gone from villain to, to certainly partner, if not quite hero yet. Um, and that is the path that TikTok should well, I think TikTok and Libras Alike would like it to go on that path, a path towards being a very close partner and making loads of money for itself and for the labels and for that to be in a very you know, clear licensing structure. So I, I sort of think that's the model that could happen now. And a lot depends on what TikTok wants to do and how it reacts to the pressure and what kind of deals to them. But the other thing about that is YouTube, one of the things that turned the tide for YouTube when it helped was its launcher a paid subscription service because before it was just an ad budget. Mm. And lo and behold, TikTok is, is mulling, expanding its Resso service globally. Yes. So that, and its podcasts potential services. Yeah. Well, I've, I've read and um, with that comes this idea that actually this huge use of TikTok, all these people using it and listen to music, and then now it will have somewhere to drive those people to a streaming service. Because we sort of know that TikTok Virality creates streams on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube. It's kind of a grey art of knowing how much and how directly. But if TikTok has its own music service, that could be, again, a step towards this relationship with rights holders where they, they, they feel the benefit of this huge free element of the service is driving paid subscriptions and is driving more royalties in other ways. So again, It would certainly be a yeah an interesting negotiation if, if TikTok said, right, we're going to launch it. A streaming service and we're going to charge everyone 10.99 a month like everybody else and it's going to be built into the app so you can watch a viral video and instead of jumping to another app you can just stay in the app and listen to it and do something else i mean that's a very that's going to be that hypothetically would be a very interesting uh conversation. there were some comments recently from leo cohen youtube's head of music uh and he said he said basically uh short video doesn't lead anywhere it's the biggest crisis for the music one of the biggest crisis the music industry in a long time and TikTok said of music, Urban at Nylon last week, he picked up on that and sort of said, ho, you know, but I believe YouTube is doing shorts. So, but the key points of Leo Cohen's thing were short video doesn't lead anywhere. And what he was saying was on YouTube, it does lead somewhere because it goes from YouTube shorts to YouTube music because we have it all in house. So mm. short video virality leads directly to streams on our platform. And that, could be where TikTok is going. So it isn't in a way, I mean, I don't want to call it a baby YouTube because they're different platforms in their DNA. But we do have this example of a company, that a service that was very much under pressure from labels that it should pay more, going on this path of redemption in a way and ending up at a place where yeah. it's it's now the one saying, we're much better than TikTok, you know. And, and TikTok's, <laughs> TikTok's job is to kind of, you know, but I think it, it's, it's still fascinating. And TikTok is, is so fascinating this year for all kinds of reasons. Like there's a whole regulatory 
privacy stuff. And it's facing enormous pressure in the US over that from politicians who are saying, ban it, it's the Chinese front for, you know, spying on Americans. And that's that's picking up some momentum yeah. in the US. Um, it's got regulators looking at it and saying, how are you how are you protecting your children users? How are you protecting their privacy? And those are really, those are questions you can't duck because those regulators can hammer you. Um, and in music, we've got this 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 dynamic still of of not really TikTok's fault, but artists feeling under pressure to do social media. But TikTok has become the kind of the lightning rod for that because it was the platform that broke the camel's back of saying you, you need to also go on TikTok. And so yeah, and and it's there's, there's a sort of wider philosophical thing here, isn't there? About which is you know chasing virality, because if TikTok is the ultimate viral engine. And, you know, because you can watch so many videos so quickly, you can, the, the magic algorithm is extra magic in TikTok's case. And it's sort of designed to be eye candy and make everything happen. It, there is this urge to push artists to, to, to become viral on there. And that, but we, we don't really have any long-term data to say what's, what's the benefit of going viral for 15 minutes on TikTok. No. You know, okay, we have these big examples of Fleetwood Mac coming back and one of their songs that was already a hit and already super famous becoming even more super famous with another generation. But like, what does it mean for the investment that people are, are making in it at the moment? Mm. That, that remains to be seen. And there's not actually a lot of uh, long-term hard evidence to say that it's worth a lot of artists' while. Well, that was what Ula said at Nylon from TikTok. He was like, you don't make artists go on there if they don't like TikTok. Um, and he made two points. One was that the community make things go viral normally. It's not normally the artist that makes something go viral. Uh, I, and so the, the, the job then becomes reacting to it and acting on it as, as a label, as a management team, where, whoever you are. Um, and the other thing he said was that young artists will come along who are good at TikTok and love it and run there naturally. And I think we're going to see that too. I think we're going to see artists who just grew up on TikTok and carry on making TikToks as they start in the industry. So to some extent, there's this limited time of, of people being told you have to go on TikTok. And, and the, the worrying thing last year was when it was when there were suggestions that people were being told they couldn't have their music come out until it went viral on TikTok. And that being a necessary prerequisite for the song they've recorded coming out. I think Halsey was the first one to kind of talk publicly about that and accuse her label of. So there is this thing of when something's a big, hot new platform, we all, everyone jumps to it and goes, right, we've got to use this. And if we don't use this, we can't succeed. And, um, but that's, that's in a way, that's, um, that's our problem to sort out internally in industry. It's not TikTok. It's, yeah. TikTok's kind of the, almost the, the passive bystander in that dynamic, I suppose. Yeah. And, and there is also, again, um, this concept of the stratification of music. You, can, you could have a, a foreseeable future where a certain type of music and like i don't just mean like a genre but how music is structured and delivered becomes uh, very very popular on uh, tiktok and artists associated with it and performers or influencers or whatever and it all sort of stays over there and entertains that group of people meanwhile over here you know you've got your you've got certain genres of music or certain types of music that work over here on these streaming platforms and ones are you know we, we we're sort of seeing this stratification of music in lots of different ways in terms of the platforms they live on the type of music it is, who's created it, the situations they're used in. And there's a lot of um, quite nuanced thinking that, like you said, it still needs to be done around where is the value on all of those different types of music and those use cases and how do we get something out which is fair for everybody? And that actually brings me on to my final Although, question, Sue. One more thing. Go on. Um, Go on. 
So th- w- when we've had this talk about high-res music in the industry, there's been this common refrain, which is like, you should hear the music as the artist heard it in the studio. And that's what high-res music is about. And alongside that, for example, Apple have been big on special here. You've also got this fact that, but on TikTok, seemingly the new thing is you should hear the music at twice the speed. The artist heard it in the studio. It's been about, and and that's where this thing is interesting, where TikTok has taken something and said, yeah, actually, sped up remixes are the thing, and that's what has value over here. So can you really sped up remix? And I saw an interview with an artist recently who did really well on it, with a TikTok view, and he said, I was asked if I could release a sped up remix, and I didn't really like the idea, but I thought, why not? And then boom, number one. Um, so I think there's this, there is this interesting thing happening where a piece of music can be an amazing high-res experience from your Apple spatial audio speakers. It can also be an amazing 30-second click on TikTok sped up twice the speed with Donk on it. Um, and it and it reminds me, it reminds me of that Beyonce album that came out a few years ago, the the the, the video, the visual album, when she had like a, a fully realized piece of work that was audio visual work like a full a film uh, the songs of the story a beautiful piece of long form storytelling and then from that came the gif with the baseball bat <laughs> and, uh, and and so i think music can always adapt to many contexts and it's not necessarily a threat and it may jar with some artists being told we're going to chipmunk your song because it will go viral on the tiktok but i think music is 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 wonderful enough to 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 just adapt to mutate according to what people want to do and what they love doing, and I don't necessarily think it's a threat in the general scheme of things. I, w- I, w- I mean, you know, this 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 trend for speeding songs up, uh, it, it 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 is kind of ridiculous. But also, anyone who lived through the early '90s and remembers Happy Hardcore uh, is is rolling their eyes with, oh, you know, the kids these days a little bit here. Um, everything has been done as we know, and uh, also, if, you know, with high res music. Some people want to hear high-res music. Some people, you know, surely a good song sounds good wherever you listen to it, right? If you hear it on, on cheap headphones or off your phone on the back of the bus or whatever, it doesn't matter, does it? Now, let's get on to this, the final topic then, which is around sort of perhaps it's the biggest picture of all of everything we've spoken about here. But talking about new models for artists, how artists are building businesses and, and how that ties into what we're talking about in terms of a fair and more transparent industry. This is something artists have talked about all of last year. And we've talked about ad nauseum, Stu, because we're saying like, look, you know, if you're an artist now, you're trying to go direct to fan, you've got all these platforms, you can build the business your way. You can have as much uh, access to as much data as you possibly can if you plan it the right way. Um, and that is, I, th- I think everyone can agree that's a great thing from an artist's perspective. Um, what is this actually going to look like in 2023 where artists, considering all the pressures you've just mentioned, and they're real, uh, around touring and streaming and the use of their songs, and they're looking to gain as much control as possible and to, to, to be in control of their careers, what is that going to look like over the next 12 mm. months? I was trying to think about this because it's it's easy to be misunderstood by talking about one of two things which I'll kind of call policy and practicality. So policy is the side of it, whereas how are artists paid? Should the model change? Should royalties be higher? All that stuff about artist failures that we've talked about. That's policy, and that, that debate goes on, and it's very important. And alongside that, there's practicality. What can you actually do to make more money on these things? While, while, you, while you press for higher rates, while you press for changes in the way it works, how can you triple your streams by doing X, Y, and Z on Spotify or on YouTube? 
And that's always been the case. Like even when YouTube was the big villain of, of the value gap debate, there were labels going, yeah, we want YouTube to pay loads more for us, but we're also doing this, these things to make our YouTube revenues increase. Yeah. So I think that's going to be the story this year. They will, the, the, the policy side will carry on and be very important. But I think there's so much artists can do and their teams can do to explore ways to make money. And, and it's one of those things where there's, there's no one template. There's like a hundred, a thousand templates of, well, if you have an artist yeah. who's quite into gaming, Twitch is quite an exciting thing for you. If you have an artist who is um, who loves to cook, well, a podcast about cooking, although I think um, J- Jesse has got there first. Yeah, Jesse would um, really box that one. But, yeah. but if you have an artist who is who loves to, to perform like a busker, well, live streaming could be like... So I think there's going to be a, just these thousand and one routes to making money, often more directly from your fans in some way, by tapping into what your artist likes and who they are and, and, and what they do. Um, rather than saying you should be on OnlyFans or TikTok or God have us OnlyFans, you should be on this particular platform. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that, like a lot more experimentation. And rather than trying to do everything, trying to find the two or three ancillary things that really suit an artist mm. and exploring them. And and this is this is the sort of the uh, the mythical third pillar of income, isn't it? Where you you know we have touring and we have. Um, uh, streaming or you know royalties from recordings um and those are going to be affected in ways we can't really forecast at the moment or we can we can make guesses um but this third pillar is the one that's sort of in control and when you think back to even only three or four years ago when artists were sort of looking at their income streams and saying well we're probably going to get 75 percent of our money from touring so we should do that a lot touring and associated things like merch and then 25 from streaming and of course, we've seen how that's panned out as soon as one of them is taken away from you. It's pretty, it's, it's bad times. Well, clearly shifting as much of, of, uh, of that income across to an income stream that you can control and is not affected by, let's say, global pandemics is, is incredibly important. So do you think we're going to sort of see, um, in that case, a growth part of the industry is surely uh, guidance for artists? Because you can't, if you, we've talked about burnout, you can't be an artist and be everywhere that you need to be all the time you're just you're not going to have time to be an artist right so it means that having that team around you who can do all these things perhaps make decisions and or create the things that you need are more important than ever and it also does shift the responsibility onto the artist to become a business and because you've got to front some money to get things going that's it and, and even the, all the money but if, if your your extra revenues come from something that you love or are curious about like you know it, it, i think um a lot of these things are are going to be really rooted in you have to work at something to earn money from it, so it might as well be something you love. And artists do love music making, but they also love other things. And so there's a whole world of, of, of stuff that can be done. But I think you're right. Burnout's a really big risk. If an artist is trying to make 72 different revenue streams work, it's going to just let them hit a wall. So it's going to be very much about identifying things, narrowing down what you do. Um, it's one of those things where this is where you can get misunderstood. If an artist is saying, I think Spotify should pay three times higher royalty rate, then that's a position you can have in the policy debate and you can campaign for that. Yeah. But also there are probably 10 things you, your team can do to triple your Spotify streams and thus triple your payout. 
And it's it's balancing those two things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have that policy argument. You shouldn't campaign, demand higher rates. But you can also do a lot. And I think when artists feel sort of daunted and ground down by how do I survive, it's an optimistic message of there is a lot of stuff you can try. And the key is to make it something that you enjoy and something that you love and makes you feel creative. Mm-hmm. And what are the things that make you feel as creative as music making does? And how can you make money from them to sustain your music making? I don't know. I- Which is the kind of wonderland premise, isn't it? That like that, that some people talk about in the tech and music tech world, which is, hey, you know what? Yes, things are maybe a bit difficult at the moment, but if you really have, if you really step into doing the things that you love, it could be podcasting as well as music making. It could be gaming or mm. Twitch streaming as well as music making. You've got the infrastructure is actually there for you to take control. And if you have faith in this thing that you love, you will get there. And that's that's the sort of Wonderland argument, isn't it? Which would be it sounds if, kind if of you're nice. good at it. It's always the caveat, isn't it? If you're good at it. That's um, what AI music creations force do. You can just outsource that as well. But but it, it's true. I think um and I think that's why something like Web3 is a good example here, where a lot of artists launched NFTs. A lot of them didn't do that well because they were just like, oh, I should launch, you know, I've been told I should do an NFT, I'll do one. Yeah. And but what's going to be good this year will be artists who are genuinely part of the Web3 community, who are excited about what NFTs can do for that for them and their fans and have creative ideas around it. And then it becomes not, I've got to do an NFT to make some revenue. It becomes, this is a creative expression for me that will also... Yeah. So I think that's going to be the key for any of this. So anything new you do as an artist, it's it's part of your creative expression it's not just something you have to do to make money i think and it it can be hard i think because everyone's worrying about money and people are saying how do i pay my bills yeah but i think there's just lots of opportunities and the key is yeah it's very easy to say hey have faith and think medium to long term isn't it and don't jump on short term uh, bandwagon exciting viral stuff all the time uh but uh, when the industry around you is doing it uh, it becomes a bit uh, difficult not to do that, doesn't it? You have to you have to really sort of have faith in what you're doing and that it will pay off in the long term. And of course, that remains to be seen if that yeah. works. But it is it is a tricky year, it's a tricky thing because I think if you ever tell artists there are loads of things you can do to make more money, it sounds like you're um, it sounds like you're saying don't complain about streaming royalties, don't complain about the model being broken, yeah. just Back work harder. And it, it's not that I think by all, like complain and press for change. Uh, and do the campaigning but also take heart in the fact that there are things you can do proactively to try to to sustain yourself and it's not about necessarily becoming rich it's about sustaining yourself mm. to make music and, and and the sustainability over a long-term period is surely preferable and maybe to sort of round it off given the the, the sort of the stormy nature of the of everything we've just discussed in the music industry and the complicated few years we've had if one of the things that comes out of this is a shift to sort of um, a, long, a sort of sustainable in the sense of long-termism thinking around building your business as an artist and, and building ways to make things work in the future, that only sounds like a good thing, doesn't mm. it? Well, look, Stu, it's been a pleasure as always. And uh, I always say this when you're on the podcast, but we should get you on more often. <laughs> and thanks for being on the podcast. And there we go. If you found that useful, please share this podcast on with someone else who you think will get something out of it. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can, as always, it's joe at musically.com. That's J-O-E at musically.com. We have a free weekly email called The Knowledge, which 
flops into your inbox every Friday with bits and pieces from the best analysis, news, marketing insight and skills from Music Ally. So sign up with the link that is in the description and impress your boss. Okay, that's it. So from me and Stu, until next time, farewell.